Um, I'm Antonia Blocker, I'm the Curator of Public Programmes here at the Whitechapel Gallery. Um, I'd like to welcome you to tonight's talk, um, which is the latest of a in a series of discussions called The Real World, which we organise in collaboration with ArtQuest. Um, I'm going to hand straight over to Orla Woods, who will introduce um, Emma Smith and Jordan McKenzie, who will be our speakers tonight. Thanks, Orla. Great. Thanks. Um, hi, I'm Orla, and um, I'm chair for the evening. Um, and just on behalf of ArtQuest and the Whitechapel Art Gallery, I'd just like to say welcome you all to the session this evening, um, which is the Real World Social Shifts um, session with M. Smith here and Jordan McKenzie. And it's going to explore a little bit how artists are working outside the gallery space um, to look at the interrelation between people, place and the everyday. Um, for those just who aren't familiar with ArtQuest, there's some um, publicity on your chairs. Um, but basically, Arts, Arts, ArtQuest is funded by the Arts Council of England and it's based at the University of the Arts in London. Um, and it works to help artists by connecting them to opportunities and resources needed to kind of progress their careers. Um, it does this mostly through its website, www.artquest.org.uk, um, which is over 2,000 pages of stuff. Um, as well as its offline activity, which are things like events, talks like tonight, and residencies, etc. Um, just coming back to the Real World series, it's an ongoing partnership that's been going with ArtQuest and the Whitechapel Art Gallery for quite a number of years now. And it uses the Whitechapel's gallery or exhibition programme to actually look at issues that are kind of relevant to contemporary artists today. So in this case, we're kind of looking at it alongside the Stephen Willicks exhibition, which is on downstairs, whose work and approach have been at the forefront of socially engaged practice in Britain. Um, one of the main aims of this session is really to open up a dialogue. So after our speakers are you know, given their presentations, which will be approximately 20 minutes each, um, we'll throw the discussion over to you and have Q&A at the end. So if you can hold your questions to the end, um, that would be great. Uh, there also, these sessions are gonna be recorded, so there'll be a roving mic, so if you can just wait for the roving mic until you ask your questions, that would be great as well. If you're tweeting, which some people do, <laughs> during the talk, can you please use the hashtag social shifts, which is one word. Um, there'll also be a few photographs that will be taken um, by Nick Caploni, who's there behind you. Uh, so if you'd rather not be photographed, can you make yourself known to him at the end? Or now. Um, and finally, I'd like to thank both Antonia Blocker and Nick Caploni from ArtQuest for their help in organising this event. Um, so. Once now those final bits of housekeeping are all done, I'd like to introduce you to the two speakers. So our first speaker is Jordan McKenzie, um, who's a cross-art form artist whose work examines place, localism, gender and class through a series of projects ranging from live art performances, um, co-curating independent artists' um, space from a lock-up garage in Bethnal Green called Lupa Lock-up Performance Art. He's co-authored performance art in residence living rooms in an estate in Walthamstow, and he's created an alter ego called Monsieur Poupery. Um, Jordan's exhibited nationally and internationally, including Tate Modern, 
Arnolfini, Yorkshire Sculpture Park, um, Muzu Sir Alves in Portugal, Sir Alves. Sir Alves in Portugal, and Grace Exhibition Space in New York. Our second speaker is going to be Emma Smith, who's an artist with a social and participatory practice that explores human relations. Um, her work is site-specific and often manifests itself in the form of an event, activity, game, etc. Emma is exhibited nationally and internationally, um, including Camden Art Centre, Whitechapel Gallery, uh, Tate Modern, Matadero, Madrid, Arnolfini and ICA. Um, she's also had residency and fellowships um, internationally, including, say, I'll name a few, there's quite a number of them, Australia, Canadian Arctic, China, India, Kenya, Lebanon, Spain and Switzerland. Um, she's co-founder of Delta Arts, and she's also a resident of the Acme Fire Station and uh, an associate artist of Arts Admin. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to hand you over to Jordan and Emma. It's going to Jordan who's going to speak first. Okay, you're going to be button presser. I'm going to be button presser. <laughs> Uh, hello. Um, uh, as I said, my name's uh, uh, Jordan, and I'm kind of um, doing this talk very tentatively in a way, because I feel that I'm just uh, feeling my own way through what this idea of working in other contexts is about, or what it could be. Um, and actually, in some ways, um, I would say that uh, I don't work often in a very participatory way, and sometimes the participation is, is almost by accident, or could be even seen as being kind of quite provocative in some ways. Um, I, for like the last four or five years, been really interested in this idea of my local environment, where I come from. Um, we are, uh, Andy and I, who's in the audience, uh, live in, a, an, in an estate called the Approach Estate in East London. And we uh, have been there for eight years now. And I was very interested in what it would be like to, what the consequences were of being um, a resident who's also in residence on, on an estate in this space. Um, so I've always, so I've been trying to look at uh, the estate and how one might make the estate, take it from being a space and make it into a place. And I suppose all of my work has been about trying to make something, take something from being a space and turn it into a place. So I thought, with the power of Google, that I would uh, Google council estate. And the very first image that I got was this one. And it kind of ushers, into question, ushers in um, all, the, all the sort of stereotypes, I think, uh, that exist in terms of the estate, a kind of post-Corbusian, uh, dream, failed dream, um, pathways in the sky, um, this may or may not be urine, it's probably rain. Um, but, you know, the, the idea of the estate as something which is, uh, which, the kind of old trope of the estate is a kind of failed utopia. Um, that becomes, has become even more politicised now since the estate, um, since the government, for example. So the estate now is a place where people can, are not meant to have a sense of community. They're not meant to have the privilege of longevity in terms of where they live. There's something now, the bedroom tax, their home isn't their own. They're, they're, and, although, and then all the, all the stereotypes also around the, around the estate, such as uh, feckless, poor, um, the kind of homogenised... Uh, Prejudice, that I suppose, is, is an experience of the estate. 
Now, those are obviously cliches, but there are cliches which are becoming, which, as, as Owen Jones has said, they're, they're cliches which are becoming more and more prevalent. So I wanted to sort of think about how one may, one may uh, make invis- investigations into this and maybe kind of uh, upset or trouble some of, the, some of the stereotypes that exist around the idea of the council estate and what it represents. So the next, the next one I'm going to show you is <laughs> a picture of my estate. But as you see, it's the, uh, it's the, it's the uh, mattress, which is you always see on estates. But the reason why I wanted to actually show this is this is the back door of where I live. And I live in a block called Thomas Hollywood House. And the reason why I showed this is because actually this is, this is sort of a way of explaining how there are sort of lot of, there are a lot of unofficial, unofficial economies going on on the estate. So for example, there are lots and lots of uh, uh, notices saying no fly tipping on the estate. Now everybody on the estate comes and drops things here. Rather than um, the council actually being uh, against that or trying to prosecute people, what they've done is, is they've kind of gone, oh, well, fair enough. Everybody dumps their stuff there. We'll get a van and we'll pick it up and we'll take it away. So somehow, although, although it's unofficial and it kind of goes under the radar, somehow everybody figures out what needs to happen. And these kind of unofficial economies are something that I'm quite interested in. Also, not yet. <laughs> also, <laughs> also um, every Sunday, well not every Sunday, a lot of Sundays, um, I don't know his nationality, but there's a man that turns up on his bicycle and he strips all the hoovers and all the wire, uh, any moving parts that he can find, and he puts them on his bicycle and he cycles off. He usually does this really early in the morning. He does this usually about 7, 7.30 in the morning before everybody's uh, awoken. On top of that, this space is also a place where there's an exchange of goods. So um, I myself have a bedside bedside table, which was from out here, which probably came from one of the other flats. And I guess I would have thought that most people in their flats have probably something which at one point was taken from outside of that door. The back door also becomes a threshold, and it's become a uh, problematic threshold for the building. Um, and the seventh floor, and this is not just stereotype, but on the seventh floor there was a temporary crack house, and uh, <laughs> and uh, a lot of the a lot of the dealers and uh, and gangs used the back door as a way of getting in and out. So it became this kind of threshold uh, where I guess some members of uh, the building were in opposition. Um, to these kinds of uninvited guests, should we say. So if you go to the next one. So what they did uh, was they used very small pieces of cardboard, which they jam in the locks. So it looked like it was closed, and it actually wasn't. And sometimes they wouldn't be so subtle. (laughs) Sometimes they'd just kind of wedge the door open with with whatever they'd find. So I started to sort of this, started to kind of generate this idea of what it would be like to have unseen collaborators. I don't know whether they called me a collaborator. They might call me a pain in the ass for actually keep on locking the door by stealing their stuff. But it was it was this idea of actually archiving all these um, objects that were left. So I'm beginning to sort of create an archive of cigarette butts, old toys, bits of plastic. And it's kind of um, interesting to wake up every day and sort of think, what have, what have I been left today? What gift have I been left today um, uh, from the back door? But also I wanted, I'm also very interested in how 
my experiences can be problematized in that way. I think it's, you know, we like to think that we all come from a very kind of very liberal, easygoing, um, open-armed uh, uh, political position. But actually, this is a threshold. This is, this is a point of uh, danger for some residents. This is a point of... Um, anxiety for some residents. So I'm kind of putting myself in the position of being a border guard, uh, sort of on patrol, basically, uh, searching, searching the area um, and confiscating uh, these access, uh, these, these things which, gain, which give people access. So in a sense, it, again, I'm thinking about how that might be, this kind of liberal position might be, pro be problematised in some way. Um, and again, how um, maybe uh, the estate feels that it's somehow under attack from this. So, next one. So this is, not yet. <laughs> so, so, returning to this idea of being a, um, a resident in residence, I became very interested in what would happen rather than if I worked, instead of working with the community, I kind of was a rather antagonistic, uh, maybe, and I, I positioned myself in an overt in an overt place of difference, I suppose. Um, and for about three years, um, I dressed up and, de and devised an alter ego called Monsieur Poupery. And Monsieur Poupery was kind of based on a series of kind of early 20th century avant-garde avant practice, I suppose. Um, I was thinking about when I was, like, when I was developing this character, people like Gérard de, de Nouvel, who was a, um, a writer and poet, um, famous for taking a lobster through Paris um, on, on a piece of uh, ribbon, and, uh, and also um, had a really interesting uh, practice where he would actually go to the outskirts of Paris and pretend that he was a tourist. So he would, he would um, defamiliarize the environment that he was in in order to see it afresh and write about it afresh. So I was, quite, I was interested in sort of oh my lord, what's happened there? I was gener interested in gener generating those kinds of ideas and also thinking about um, the idea of Britishness and, and its relationship to satire as well. So um, I deliberately made a very othered kind of character just to sort of see how how that environment, my environment, the environment, would respond. So I made, um, by using a kind of uh, satirical uh, position, I kind of came up with a backstory, which was basically Monsieur Poupery was a, um, an aristocrat that had hit upon hard times, and he'd ended up in, a mistake, in an estate, and he misrecognized his country estate. He misrecognized the council estate for a country estate. So I kind of, in a very satirical way, um, um, deliberately misrecognized my environment and turned it into this kind of reimagined space. Yeah, and then you can just... Oh. Just, yeah, just... That's it.
So for me, I suppose uh, Monsieur Poupriere operated in a way of sort of uh, testing out that environment, testing out what would happen. And I was interested in sort of building on this idea of, um, this is a bit where it goes um, kind of theoretical and everybody knows, uh, Burroughs' idea of relational aesthetics, where basically the artwork was around conviviality, was around people coming together and doing something through their intersubjective experience of the artwork. And I was interested in um, uh, Claire Bishop's, through Chantal Mouffe's, Mouffe's um, idea of antagonistic uh, uh, relational aesthetics. So the kind of, um, if you're looking at democracy and participation, um, real democracy and participation maybe comes, out, comes from who's left out like who, who can't participate, um, uh, where, where's the problematics of participation. Um, and I was kind of interested in seeing what would happen if I became this kind of alter ego uh, for a long period of time, um, in the same way that you see other kind of um, um, othered identities in the, uh, in the environment of the estate and also in, in a wider environment too. So um, this is the second video. So I also then started to use the idea of localism very much in my work and to um, explore that uh, up and down the street. Um, this is a series of films that I made dressed as, dressed as Monsieur Poupery. And this one's called Monsieur Poupery Points at Things. So again, I was, I was kind of looking at the idea of the, of the flaneur. Um, I'll read out the definition here. Flaneur means the stroller or the lounger, saunterer. Oh, there's no light. <laughs> it's right in my glasses. Saunterer <laughs> or loafer. Thank you. <laughs> I knew that would happen. Saunterer or loafer. Um, and the flaneur refers to the act of strolling with all of its accompanying associations. Um, 
The flanneau was first of all a literary type from the 19th century, uh, France, uh, which, uh, essential to any, which was essential to any picture of the streets of Paris. The word carries a set of rich associations, the man of leisure, the idler, the urban explorer, the connoisseur of the street, uh, meaning stroller, lounger, saunterer, or loafer. Flannery re refers to the act of strolling with all of its accompanying associations. So it was this idea of, um, and I was really interested in, in what the, in what the um, surrealists said, which, which uh, one of their famous sayings is, life's penetration by the marvellous. And it was about trying to uh, reimagine social spaces, reimagine them in a radical way, which, which, which was kind of um, very anti-functional. And um, what I found with the estate was there was this kind of hideous functionality or expected functionality by, this, by the estate. Uh, and on the estate. So um, I wanted to kind of address that and think about how um, that might be challenged in some way. So I would like to say that this was probably done from a very kind of uh, rigorous examination of um, social context. But in reality, what happened was uh, me and my friend, the performance artist Aaron Williamson, got very, very drunk in the approach pub one day. And I said that we had a spare garage on the estate. And um, we both went, wouldn't it be great if we turned that into a performance art space? So um, that's kind of how it happened, really. So what we started to do was to... Um, we announced this lockup garage, uh, we called it Looper, Lockup Performance Art. And initially we started, we had it every month for, a, for, 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 for one hour. Uh, throughout the year, um, we saw performance art in rain, snow, frost, sometimes sunshine. Um, and it was, um, again, I wanted to sort of make a space which was, well, what would happen if a bit like being an artist in resident and also residence on the state. What would happen if I put performance art there? How would, how would, it, how would it be accepted? Um, but in a sense, again, it wasn't in the real sense or wasn't at the beginning participatory. Uh, what it was was I invited certain artists. We had rules. No bloodletting, no nudity. Um, it was contextually driven in that sense. It had to, it had to sort of relate in some way, um, or it had to be sensitive to the audiences that were there, which were which were which were multiple, multiple kinds of audiences. Now, the way that where this was positioned was, they basically had an amphitheatre, so all the flats overlooked the garage, and. Um, this is kind of quite an important part of it. So what happened was that we started to uh, present the works, uh, of which we probably had about 10 people when it first started. By the end of it, we had um, upwards of 200 to 300 people turning up to see the performances. Um, what I did was I made a, a, a monthly newsletter and set up a Facebook page. And I made sure that I went around um, the estate and posted this newsletter. Um, through the doors of the estate. And I wasn't really too sure, you can go on to another, this is, uh, this is what it was looking like in the end. I wasn't really too sure what was happening. I didn't know whether they were being thrown away, whether people were very against it, whether people hated what was happening, uh, whether people just tolerated it because I lived there, etc., etc. And it was also really important, it felt very important that um, it was somehow quite a spontaneous space as well, that it wasn't a space that was supported by the Arts Council, it wasn't a space that was known by the council, it was something that was quite unofficial. Um, not quite a pop-up in a sense, but something that kind of carried that idea with it. Um, 
I wanted it to be, as Hacking by the Anarchist talks about temporary autonomous zones, and he talks about things kind of being underneath the radar, um, and how... Uh, um, and how those can exist in kind of unofficial forms. So they're not, they're not utopian, but it kind of gives you some freedom of movement within the political system. So I was kind of interested in what this might be. Anyway, there were two artists. Um, you can just flick through. I've just got random slides. There were two artists um, called uh, uh, French Montessette that actually then decided that they would actively like to work with... Uh, members of the estate. So what we did was we went round and we knocked on the doors. And what I found was that people were not only knew what was going on, they actually looked forward to what was going on. And it, and they could all. And they, what happened was was there was this idea that they wanted to participate, but they didn't want to be there. So the idea of having this space where they, could, where they could look from, the balconies, was really important to them. They felt a great sense of ownership of it, and they were very proud that it, that it was happening, and they, were, and they were very pleased to become involved. But it, was, it, was a, it came out of a kind of a co-presence, not what I would call a sort of a deliberate, let's involve you. There, it, was, it, was, it was the sharing of a space, um, and it was the turning of that space into a place, and a place which had different kinds of discourse around it, and different kinds of sharing around it. Uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, they did, next slide please, uh, uh, French Montessori um, did uh, make a really lovely piece, which um, was shown, um, and uh, then the residents started uh, to come down and to actually uh, participate a little bit more, but it, but it took, I would say, it took about half a year for that to happen. Um, then at the end, because it was very ad hoc and we'd deliberately done it so, we got, we got the light from the shop opposite, we ran a, a legal bar from, from, from a car boot, um, everything was run on a no budget. And um, in the end, the, uh, the uh, residents association approached me um, and said, can we make this into a large fate? Um, we would really like it not to just be in the garage, but we would actually like it to be on the, uh, on the parks, in lots of the green areas, on the um, allotments, etc., etc. So they actually, there was this beautiful moment where it was just, well, you know, the estate was, in a very proud way, was saying we would like to be, we would like this to be part of what we do, and we'd like to be known for this, and we'd like to increase this in some way. So um, we actually then kind of went quite official with it, and to our surprise, because we thought, again, there'd be a lot of problems with the council. The councils were really keen on getting involved with it too. So um, then we um, held a large fete, um, which involved everyone. And uh, unfortunately, it was kind of really sunny on the Friday, really sunny on the, sat on the Sunday, absolutely tipped it down on the Saturday. So there was... Um, it was again about this idea of kind of enchanting a space, I suppose. This is what I'm kind of, kind of quite interested in. The idea that spaces don't need to be what space, how spaces are uh, prescribed to be. And that um, for a while, that car park became something else. It became something different. So after Looper, um, and then also one thing that's really important about Looper is I suppose there's always when you're a practitioner, maybe you're marrying different kinds of expectations as well. So there was an expectation for it to carry on. And I thought that actually Looper had done what it needed to do. So there's, there's always that problem of measuring other people's needs against, against, against your own. And also sometimes people want the work 
to do something that maybe you're not complete, you don't completely want it to do either. So um, it, becomes, um, it becomes more or less like a street party or something. And again, I think it's, it's um, those negotiations and those discussions are really important. So then it went on to, I don't know how much time I've got, am I running out? Okay. Um, so then I decided that I kind of wanted to figure out, next slide, um, all these kind of, all these sort of issues that I was sort of um, trying, to, trying to figure out, like what, what I was doing there and what, um, what, what it meant and what was going on. Um, so I decided, and this, we don't have any photographs of this deliberately, I decided that I'd hold a summit meeting in my flat. Um, and... It was part of um, Live Art Development Agency's DIY. And the reason why I wanted, I invited um, five artists, um, some uh, academics, theorists, such as Katie. <laughs> um, uh, also, um, Nick Rideout. Um, and um, also uh, residents, uh, uh, people that worked in the council, uh, neighborhood community workers, and something which I thought might be a little bit tokenistic, but actually turned out to, be, to work really well, was um, a kind of a, a, an afternoon with a variety of, of neighbours. And actually that moment of, again, storytelling, exchange, reimagining was really, really important. Um, but also kind of conceptually, I was interested in a group of people that were in a space and had to negotiate my space. So just as they were kind of exterior to the estate, they were also exterior to my social space too, so they had to sort of figure out and you could kind of watch them getting more and more comfortable with the space as they went along. Um, and one thing that was kind of really struck me um, was a phrase that um, Nick Rideout used and he, he talked about the unburdened listener. And the unburdened listener, he said, when, when he's at college, he's always trying to get people to sort of talk and be involved in seminars and give them their opinion. And what he actually realises is that sometimes people learn by just sitting and listening. And the, and the neoliberal need for the proving of people being involved, the proving of participation, he kind of said, actually, sometimes people just want to listen in an, in an unburdened way. And I felt that kind of Looper was a bit like that. It was sort of listening in an unburdened way without the kind of, the kind of aggressive need to always be present and participate and be in it. It was just something that was kind of in the air and around. And so this idea of unburdened listening, um, I became really, really involved with. Um, and it's kind of a phrase that has, that has really stuck with me, the idea of, 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 the, idea of, the, um, of the unburdened listener, who's engaged, but not necessarily having to be in it or show or prove that they are a kind of neoliberal need for uh, people to be participating. Um, so one of also the people that, uh, uh, the groups that were there was the drawing shed. And Sally's also in the audience too. Uh, it's just like she's tweeting, I think. Um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, so if you want to go to the next. And from that, we, well, there she is. Uh, and from that, um, I um, was interested, and Sally and Bobby approached me uh, to talk about maybe thinking about working on uh, with the drawing shed. And the drawing shed have been, I don't want to talk too much for Sally, but the drawing shed have, shed have been on an estate in Walthamstow for three years. And um, it's a very sort of... Uh, lively, fascinating and interesting environment uh, that, they, that, that, that they both work in. 
And um, it's a very nuanced kind of practice in terms of they have, um, they have a, a mobile oven, they also have a print bike. Um, and I was really interested in what Sally calls this kind of toing and throwing, the sort of, you know, the sort of ne different negotiations that kind of carry on. The way that, the way that, you know, there's a kind of pushing for art, there's a pushing for participation, there's a pushing, there's this, there are these conversations that happen in these spaces uh, and that occur in these spaces in very, in very kind of subtle ways. And I was kind of really interested in, in seeing how what I'd done, which I didn't regard was very participatory at all in some ways, with a practice which I regard as, as being very politicised and very involved um, on those estates and what they represent to the people there, to the people exterior to those, um, and how that kind of representation is dealt with. So we um, commissioned... Okay, really quick. We commissioned... Um, A series of artists, one of which was uh, Pablo Pezzazzarati, if I pronounce that right. And um, we asked them to make works on the estate and to think about what that would mean um, and how that would operate. And um, he made um, a piece of work which I, it was a sound map, which um, as a form, I think is rather overused. But he also did this, which I think was really, which was really interesting, where he made food. Um, during, a, during an event called a live lunch and actually told the story of his grandmother. And the exchange of comments and the listening, the unburdened listening that happened when he was uh, talking about those things was really quite magical to happen. And you could see that his, his, sto his story touched on ideas of ageing, feminism, um, uh, developing world um, politics, history, um, sociality, poverty, um, all these things that he kind of went through. And actually, this began to, began to chime, the simple act of exchange, um, this idea of the unburdened listener began, began, began to chime. So I thought this was a really, really successful um, way of, 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 of actually engaging with, with, with the audiences that were there. And then, with the final one, I guess, isn't it? So let's, I don't think I've got time to talk about. So this then went on to, um, uh, working at the Winds Gallery, I'll just wrap up now, working at the Winds Gallery, uh, which was again was, um, I guess, quite challenging in some ways. Um, there were times where uh, a lot of the work went out of the gallery and into uh, the spaces of the park. The Winds Gallery was in the middle of a park. And to begin with, I would say that actually there was quite a lot of um, antagonism to a certain extent with some, of, with, some, with some of the audiences that were there. But again, this kind of sharing, sharing a space and turning it into a place, the kind of coexistence and the keeping being there and the keeping going on and the keeping opening up was something that in the end meant that there was, I think, towards the end of it, a real sense of exchange going on uh, between the artists and the people that use that park. Until in the end, actually, there was performance art going on and everybody was just kind of integrated and integrating in a really interesting way. So finally, I just want to end with mine really quick. And this is a piece called Living Room. And what I've been doing, and will be continuing doing, this is the first one, is um, I've been... Um, going back to the estate uh, where, where, the, where the drawing shed in Walthamstow is, and I've been um, working and will be working with various residents. This one is called William. Um, again, I'm very interested in not being the kind of invisible guiding hand. I, I clearly come into 
William's life as somebody who's a performance artist doing performance art that knows about performance art and teaches performance art. And so what we do is we, over the course of a day, we make a performance together, which becomes a photograph. Um, in William's case, um, he was very inspired. He'd, he'd lived in the theatre world for a long time. He was very inspired by the theatre. And he missed the excitement of the production and things having to be made at the last minute and the curtain going up. So uh, we did sort of work around gestures and posing, but we also mainly sort of started to talk about, um, OK, the curtain's coming up in three hours, what are you going to do? And suddenly, this man was animated. He took me shopping in the market. We bought all these kind of um, different kinds of costumes, etc., etc. And the stories that he was telling, he became. The stories that um, of all this theatricality, all the places that he'd been, he suddenly started to become this character. And as he dressed me up, and as he dressed himself up, he became the things that he was talking about. And this transformation in his living room was kind of quite amazing, really. Um, and again, I think all I did was be a kind of an unburdened listener for him, really. <laughs> Somebody who uh, was there, but also was trying to make a space a place. Um, a space which maybe, in some times for him, is quite isolating. Try and turn that space into a place again. And try and, as the surrealists say, um, penetrate the kind of marvellous into the everyday. That's it. I'm going to come up with my website, so I'll just start. Um, so my name's Emma Smith. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about my practice. My presentation is going to involve a bit of theory, but also some examples of work. I'd like to raise quite a few points, so I'm going to try and stick to my notes a little bit. Um, and, yeah, hopefully stick to time. We'll see. Uh, so uh, my work as an artist is concerned with relationalities both in terms of thinking about human social relationships and how I might think of that on a more anthropological level um, but I'm also interested in our relationship to place and in particular uh, what constitutes place, place knowledge, um, tacit forms of knowledge uh, but I'm very interested in the ways in which we may be in relationship without realising that we're in relationship um, and so in my work in looking at um, the sort of in interconnectivity between people and place, I've looked at animistic belief systems and particle physics, and these have been two things that have been um, quite informing of the way that I work. Um, so my work's um, often developed through interdisciplinary collaborations, working with people on common concerns and a mutual interest in what can be produced by the bringing together of different practices, skills, knowledge, um, through collective action. And this has included working with a range of professionals working with particular skill sets that become necessary part of a collective research or action process, so working with anthropologists, physicists, biologists, chemists, uh, classicists, 
um, musicologists, neuroscientists, but also people who maybe um, have other forms of knowledge that become um, have crossovers or proximities with interests of my own. So working with uh, London black cab drivers I can work with at the moment, uh, dog walkers, rowers, botanists, um, yeah, bell ringers, fit a variety of people. Um, so I'm going to talk about a few ideas this evening that are things that I've been writing on uh, recently and thinking around. Um, so I'm going to summarise a few key points that I wanted to raise that we can potentially discuss. Uh, and then expand maybe a little bit further on an idea that I've been thinking about recently, which is the idea of practice as rehearsal as opposed to performance. Um, so the first point that I wanted to make or uh, raise is to think about place as having no steadfast essence. So place means multiple things to different people, but it also means multiple things to each individual. And if we think about place as space and how we might also locate that, then Scientifically speaking, all matter on a subatomic level can be considered as energy and as such also has no fixity. Practice of place in order to be fully connected to it must therefore also be fluid. And this to me is where I've become interested in thinking about why we might need art in society, what role it plays. Um, there's a certain terminologies that are um, banded around the sector, uh, one particularly that I dislike, which is the idea of best practice. And, and so I've been interested in thinking, like, how do we conceive of place um, as this fluid space um, through thinking about it scientifically and philosophically, and that then the idea of best practice becomes a kind of ludicrous um, proposal. Um, and that art practice actually is a, um, an always new thing that is kind of muddled or dirty or comes about in the moment of its happening, um, and so strategy actually, which is what best practice seems to be, is always in this state of lag and what is required actually in place and to actually fully be in place is something more tactical and this actually I think is what art practice is. Um, so I'm going to just show a few images from a piece of work called Change Energy Equals the Work, which is a project, ongoing piece of work um, which I started developing at Arts Admin uh, in 2010 and has run through, uh, had various manifestations um, at Tate, Arnolfini and uh, various places. But the idea of this work was really to uh, think about what relationship is by coming back to understanding how we might be relating on, a, on levels that we're not aware of. So thinking about how art history has sort of separated these practices. So we might think about sculpture or painting or performance. And actually, if you kind of plonk all of that discourse into the context of nuclear physics, then actually you're dealing with the same stuff. And it's all just energy. And so what if we start from that point of understanding, then what happens when we come back into a room and in a space um, together? And so the idea of this work was really to push and understand the ways in which we may be connecting or aware of one another um, beyond the kind of uh, social normative forms of behaviour. So this is looking at, um, it's been a quite extended piece of research, but looking at resonance in space um, and is a vocal performance uh, or game or activity that uses a series of different practices for people to come and uh, explore their relationship with one another. And this has taken place in response to objects, spaces, um, and people. But I shall just whiz through some of these. Um, 
my work is basically a kind of ongoing research process, so I quite often just turn, use the gallery as a space to kind of test things out and invite people into and um, work through ideas. So the second point that I wanted to make was that we, I believe us to all be in common um, and that we come into being through understanding our differences. Um, so in the West, identity culture has been perpetuated through the arts, particularly in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, you can see this real kind of assertion of the importance of the individual. And as a result of that, consequently, you have the suggestion that we are individual and we come together through finding points of commonality. And so community in the West primarily is constructed around a notion of sameness. So we get communities of common geographic location, uh, communities of interest, community of ethnicity, etc. Uh, and what I believe to be the case actually is the opposite of that, that in fact uh, we're all the same and that we develop a sense of self through a process of differing and understanding that difference. Um, and this, in a very simple way, begins, uh, we can understand to begin when we're babies and we first have that realisation that this is my hand and it's not the table and I can start to move it and have agency over it, um, but then develops through a more complex process of forming relationships with other people. Um, and potentially for slightly too complicated reasons to go into now, I'm interested in this as a, being a conception that's been long understood in certain uh, societies around the world, potentially, um, particularly those that maybe have been labelled historically as being animistic. Um, but I also think that it's a point that um, of thinking that is maybe being reached within Western philosophy through the work of people like Jean-Luc Nancy and through physicists like Karen Barrett, um, where there, is, there seems to be a kind of moment to me or a convergence on this idea um, where there's an understanding that we're all the same stuff. Um, and this to me has then a, a, a great significance in thinking about what does community mean, what does relationship mean, and how is that formed. Um, and I think we're actually very good at forming commonalities or seeking commonalities. This is a very natural process and the sort of slightest glance at uh, expat communities around the world stands as great testament to this, that we're kind of very keen to find people that are similar to ourselves. And actually finding or understanding our differences is something that we really struggle with. Um, and I think particularly in the UK, there is a culture of respect, which is I respect your views, without which actually kind of uh, happens prior to understanding what those views might be, and you know, where how often do we kind of really understand uh, somebody else's experience or someone else's opinion to actually truly respect it? And maybe if we did take the time to find out more about it, we might find that we disrespected it, and that might be totally fine also. Um, so this is something um, that I was thinking about in a piece of work uh, that I produced with Radar, um, which is a piece that I made in collaboration with um, anthropologist Sarah Pink, who's based in Melbourne in Australia, and uh, Kristen Leder-Mackey, who's based at Loughborough University. And we were looking at social dynamics and social meeting points, and we were particularly interested in the forms of knowledge that come through collective living environments. And so we were looking at the halls of residence in uh, Loughborough University, where Traditionally, we think of universities as spaces of learning, whereas I was interested in how in the halls of residence you have a huge amount of knowledge that's being generated on how to live with one another. Um, and the campus of Loughborough University is such that all of the students live exact on the same site, and they live in 
uh, blocks and the university constructs a sense of belonging or attempts to for the students when they arrive by everybody gets a coloured t-shirt that identifies them as coming from their block and then they spend the whole of freshness week having quite aggressive competitions against one another and it's a real kind of tribal idea of what connection to place or a sense of belonging means and this is like this is my group and that's your group and if we fight each other then we'll feel like we kind of understand who we are and where we are and for this, a lot of the students, this is deeply problematic because actually maybe the person they like most is in a different block wearing a pink T-shirt and they're stuck wearing a blue one and, and this means that they're not meant to talk to each other somehow. Um, so we started looking at this situation that the students had kind of raised as a point of concern, uh, but also looking at what kinds of knowledge um, around social collectivity and collective living were being produced anyway in this space. So we held a series of evening events uh, evening Lessons on Living uh, was the title of the programme that we developed with the students, looking at things that they wanted to know more about, about the domestic spaces that they were using. So we had things like, look, we invited a chef in to uh, do a lesson on learning to cook a curry from scratch uh, for under a fiver. Uh, they didn't know how to use the washing machine, so we had a woman from the local laundrette come and do a performance of the washing machine and had a party in the laundry room. Um, we had a uh, interior designer come and think about what a common room means because common rooms generally in halls of residence are fairly disgusting places that nobody actually ever uses and so we were thinking about what does it mean to commonly uh, occupy a, a room and how you might use it and as a result of that I got interested in this idea of this forced individuation that happened through this process of belonging that was um, promoted by the university when these students were arriving and so the work that we produced was a game that was basically to provide some kind of meeting space that was based on difference rather than seeking commonalities. Um, so the work operates a bit like the game Solitaire, uh, where it has this large um, sort of floor tile, um, and it's just a space to meet people, so you, it's, just, it's played just as a game. So you take a position on a square with on the board, and the aim of the sort of task, as it were, is to get everybody off the board without leaving anybody behind. And the way that you move is just to introduce yourself to the person next to you and have a conversation. And you are uh, you facilitate movement by by finding a difference between you. And each player can decide for themselves what constitutes difference. So you might speak to someone, decide you've got a different name, and for you that's perfectly enough difference to decide to move. Other people will spend 20 minutes getting to the sort of roots of their political beliefs and really kind of battling something out. Um, and once you find a difference, then you basically just sort of leapfrog a place, and you do that until you get off the space, but making sure that you're doing that collectively uh, to make sure nobody else gets left behind. And it's a really, I mean, it's quite a simple mechanism. Um, but it's a really uncanny thing, actually, to talk to somebody and try and understand why you're different. Because we're so used to, when you speak to somebody, being like, oh, yeah, actually, I've been there, or I did that, and to sort of make these leaps, which stop you actually understanding how your experience is probably quite fundamentally different and always will inevitably be different. Um, so this was devised um, with a particular group of students and with these... Um, academics, but then used during Freshers' Week, um, and it's been used for the last two years during Freshers' Week, and they're now looking at seeing whether this can become a permanent piece within the university and on, used on an ongoing basis, because it's been so um, kind of a, a useful thing, I guess, for the people coming into this space. Um, so the next point I wanted to talk about was 
just very briefly to touch on the idea of collaboration, and this is something that I personally think to be quite a necessary process. Um, so I think there is so much knowledge to be known, and the way that we learn and think about knowledge now has become so specialised that actually if we don't collaborate or work with one another, then it's very difficult to actually produce anything that you might be able to kind of realistically view as being, of having any kind of contextual relevance. Um, so I was just going to talk um, briefly about a piece of work I'm working on at the moment, which is called Five Hertz, um, which I'm developing at Arnolfini Gallery uh, in Bristol. And the project is a collaborative piece of work between myself, uh, Dr. Lawrence White, who's a um, psycholinguist phonetician, and Emma Hornby, who is a musicologist, and Dr. Nina Casanina, who's a neuroscientist. And the idea of this work is to invent a new language um, for the purposes of social relation. So I was interested in some medical research, uh, research that's been coming out of biomedics in the last few years that suggests that when we first started vocalizing as a human species, we sang to each other rather than spoke. Um, and this has been proposed both by looking at the potential evolution of the vocal tract, but also the kind of social anthropological need, why, what might have prompted uh, the need for vocalization, which is proposed in when we were living in tiny groups, we would have been able to pick each other's nits and scratch each other's heads and sh show our kind of solidarity through physical contact. And then as we started living in larger group sizes, we needed some way of communicating that social bond. And, um, and the, so this is the proposal that potentially this is what prompted us to vocalize in the first place, but then we were able to do this through song rather than speech. Um, so what I was interested with this project is that in our current evolution of speech, we have prioritized the communication of facts. So we have a, an element of social relation which is present within voice, which becomes more apparent when you're talking to a lover or a baby, perhaps, or a child. Um, but we have prioritized communicating factual information. And what I was interested in is what is it within voice that is produ producing of social relation and what might we sound like had the priorities been the other way around. So had the social relation been priority and the factual communication secondary. And so the idea of this work is to propose an alternative evolution of language that does this, but to do it in such a way that it actually works um, and also has a plausible evolutionary process. So we've been... Um, producing these laboratories in the gallery space um, for the last few months, where um, through open calls we invite interested people in, and working with a live choir, we've been producing a whole series of different vocal samples, wiring people up with um, Wi-Fi neuroscanning devices when they come into the space, and then looking at how people are emotively and neurologically responding to different vocal signals. Um, we're looking at, just to get specific, we're looking at uh, theta oscillation and uh, rhythmicity. rhythmicity. Um, but we're then uh, analysing this information at the moment and then feeding the outcomes of that into a series of language evolution workshops which will take place at the Anolfini in November. And the idea of those is uh, we've been devising mechanisms through which we can start to simulate the evolution of language in a few hours rather than a few thousand years so that at the end of it, potentially, we have a language that causes you to feel in relation to somebody else through manipulating your brainwave when you're hearing to it, uh, hear, listening to it. Um, and um, has, a, has gone through an evolutionary testing process that, that means that it kind of has some chance of surviving. Um, so my sort of... Um, 
I, want, I raised this project really just because this is a piece of work that I would have no hope in making if I weren't able to work with the experts that I'm working with or the members of the public who've come into that. Um, and so always, um, to me, working in a collaborative way is, is, a, is a sort of necessary process. Um, I'm going to talk about this in a minute. Um, so I've just finished writing a book which is called Practice of Place, um, which looks in quite a lot of depth at how we might conceive of place, what that is, what practice means in relation to place. Um, and that will be um, published later this year by Bedford Press. Um, but I wanted to, I, having sort of the final chapter of that book really looks at what does the gallery mean for social practices and moving beyond, like practices that move beyond the gallery space as a territorialized or um, marketed space. Um, and this, uh, through thinking about that and thinking about the possibility of the gallery as laboratory and as a space for experimentation, I started thinking about this idea of rehearsal and that was something that I wanted to raise this evening. Um, in part because also this uh, talk is happening in the context of the Stephen Willett's exhibition. Um, and I'm just going to do a quick plug. <laughs> um, so I've just um, contributed to Stephen's latest issue of Control magazine, which is downstairs on sale in the bookshop. Um, and I took this opportunity when Stephen invited me to uh, write something about my work for this, to think about this idea of rehearsal that I've been thinking about for some time but hadn't sort of had the time to really flesh out and so um, the article I wrote for that is all is all about this so I just thought I'd share some of that um, this evening. Um, so I've written about and spoken about previously the importance of the terms of practice um, and the language that goes around um, practice and I think this has become particularly important to me thinking about participation, collaborative practices, social practices, thinking about the context in which this gets commissioned, the agendas behind that and my sort of fairly um, critical approach to how those operate. Um, so my work quite often will be referred to as social practice or socially engaged practice, collaborative, participatory um, or performance-based practice and so and none of these ever really feel right and they all come with a very laden history and pre of, of, sort of previous use and I always feel like I have to give a sort of subtitle to be like well that's kind of what it is but actually it isn't at all and this is what it is. Uh, I never feel like there's actually really a word that's that useful and so I, was, I sort of came at this idea of rehearsal as thinking well is this, is this something that could be potentially useful as a descriptor um, and um, so according to the dictionary rehearsal creates a space to test and improve the interaction between those participating. Um, so while we might think of performance as carrying into action and representation by action, one's performance acts, de act, deed or feat can be measured as high, low, good, poor or optimal. The ants in performance uh, refers to maybe a state or condition such as a result or a capacity. And what I was interested in with the idea of rehearsal is that it doesn't present any kind of conclusion um, and, and it is more a proposition that needs to be further addressed. Um, it's a proposal of something that is both transformative and transforming. Um, so like performance, rehearsal pertains to action as opposed to theory, but as, it, as this is an experiment rather than conclusion. Um, to rehearse is to practice, to attempt and to have a go at and test out. When we practice, we play and we rehearse in order to play well. 
performance of a play suspends disbelief and the play is conveyed through artifice, props and a facade of the stage and of being staged, whereas in rehearsal, as in practice, we can play with our hands and our cards face up and trickery is replaced by honesty and mistakes are there to be made and learnt from. Um, experiment is derived in part from the old French term experience, from which is also derived our experience. Experience is both the events through which we live and the resulting familiarity, knowledge and skills that comes through their happening. It stems also from the Latin experimentum and the testing of something previously untried. Uh, and this for me, I suppose, is really um, how I think about what I'm doing with my work is not to present something that is known or kind of um, a fixed idea, but just to take, a, take something and, and try it out. Um, and so the work, um, which I, there is no documentation of this work, um, Love Me, Love Me Not, which was a piece that I made for the ICA, was really that, and it was about uh, uh, experiment into the potentiality to love a stranger. And so the idea with this work was, um, I suppose, questioning and thinking around the idea of um, unconditional love, um, and thinking about the idea of the self as being made up out of multiple selves, that we are different people with different others, um, and in different instances, and that's something that's continuously in flux. Uh, but what might happen if I pretend to be, or I try and embody the person that I am when I'm with somebody who I do love, when I'm with somebody who I don't know from Adam, and, what might, and if they do the same, what might happen between us? Uh, so the idea with this work was really to use the galleries just as a social meeting space. And so through um, open call, people were invited to book to come and do this experiment with me. Um, we were both participants in this. And the only condition of booking was that you had experience of the type of relationship that we were going to test out together. So the relationship that I put out on offer, um, because they're ones that I have experience of to reference, was uh, you could be best friends, siblings, parents, um, or lover. And these were the kind of four proposals that we might test. And then so people booking could say which of those they would want to do, and that was the relationship we would try and embody. Um, so the member of the public would come to the gallery. Before they came, everything was very open and transparent that we were doing this together. We were going to test it out. This was the relationship uh, that we were going to try and embody. Um, and we, I also tried to get an understanding of any barriers that needed to be understood before we, or boundaries that needed to be understood before we did this work. So I gave full consent to the um, member of the public that they could do anything with me physically that they wanted to within the scope of this relationship. Um, obviously, if someone breaks the law, that's kind of, you know, I would take offense uh, normally. So it was, I just basically said, whatever goes is fine. Um, but if you feel that there are some personal boundaries that you'd like me to respect in this situation, try and let me know beforehand so that we're not having to negotiate them too much within the space of the work. Uh, but as it was, nobody else set any boundaries either, so it was all go. Um, and so they came to the gallery. They would be taken, when they arrived, they were taken to a space on their own, uh, just to have some quiet time for about 15 minutes. And say we were doing sibling, uh, but they were then just invited to think, who are you when you're with your sibling? How do you speak to them? How do you behave around them? What's your body language? Um, and just kind of get yourself in that uh, psychological space. And I would be doing the same elsewhere. And then they were taken to a table in the cafe uh, so that I knew that it was them. And then from the moment I approached them, we were in that relationship. Um, we then decided whether we wanted to have a meal, have a drink, go around the gallery, um, do whatever, but to spend the time that we had together within that relation. 
Um, and the work also ended within that relation. So if it was a sibling, I would be, you know, we, we would sort of make arrangement to send an email or something, meet for dinner the following week. Uh, there were the people who was with my a parent. I was like, oh, I'll see you at Christmas, whatever. Um, with the lover, it was uh, a much more intimate goodbye. And like, I'm really sorry, I have to work late this evening, but I'll be home, you know, home in a couple of hours. Um, and so the, I, I have to say, I felt slightly psychotic by the end of the evening. <laughs> mm. But it was quite an extraordinary thing that happened. And I, I didn't know whether people would, my fear was that people might step out of that space and be very aware of what we were doing. But actually, we completely inhabited that space for the entire time and had the most extraordinary relationships. And they were really very genuine. And I liked the fact that uh, the work was, had no audience and that it was, there, was, there was no publicity allowed in the lead up to the work taking place in the gallery. So people in the gallery were witness to it without realizing that they were witness to it. They just thought we were a couple going around um, looking at the work in the gallery. And to the extent that um, I just finished doing one which was a couple, a lover relationship. And then I went and sat with one of the gallery assistants to get my head into the space, the next, next person who's gonna come. And said, is it okay if I just come and sit with you for a minute? I'm doing this, doing this work. And she didn't know that this was taking place uh, that, that day. And so she was like, oh, was that your boyfriend just going, wishing you good luck? And I was like, no, that was a complete random person. I just happened to be like kissing them goodbye. Um, so I was kind of really excited by the potential of what kinds of relationship can we produce, actually, when we kind of forget these sort of social norms and just think about what the capacity is of the human being to love or to be together. Um, right, where are we? So I'm really interested in then, therefore, thinking about this space of rehearsal as both this kind of real and not real space, uh, that the act of rehearsal is a real experience with real implications for those that take part, um, and that the work done in rehearsal is to imagine or to enter this unreal space or dream time where, the possibilities, where new possibilities can be imagined. And to me, the gallery really provides this, and actually something that I've come to through thinking about practices that move beyond the gallery as space is actually the importance to me of the gallery as a space through which you can uh, operate in the midst of things but not in the centre and you can create a non-space not in the sense of a modernist architectural understanding of this term but actually a space where we can dream or think sideways or challenge and maybe galleries quite often don't get used in any way like this but I think there is a really important type of space that is produced through the gallery for this. Um, so such imaginings then transcend the limitation of the unreal by entering into a collective consciousness of real life through those that contribute to that process. Um, dreaming is an intimate act that requires a certain safety and rehearsals are safe because they're private to the participants. And this is another thing that's really key to me in my work that there isn't a performer or an audience member. It's just people coming together to test something out and work, work through something through through that coming together. And I suppose a part of that, uh, something that facilitates that is making a space that's safe enough in which that can happen. Uh, and so the construction of a space that can be uh, safe. Uh, and this is why with this work, there was no documentation taken of the work. And always my priority is what's happening in that space with the people who are there. Um, and so I just wanted to uh, end the final example I'm gonna show is of a piece of work of mine called the Etophilus Society. Uh, this is a fictitious word. I'm quite often making up words. Um, which is derived from uh, Sanskrit and Old Irish, but means um, the interspace of love. 
Um, and this was really to look at the, the idea of the society is to look at the history of intimacy, so how the idea of intimacy has been understood historically and how it might be understood now and how ideas and intimacy circulate now in contemporary culture. And this project started by looking at two collections, one at the British Museum uh, in London and one at the Museum, at the, and the Museum Secreto uh, in Naples. Uh, and these are both collections which for most of their history have been kept under lock and key. The one in Naples is now accessible, but the one in London, uh, you still require permission to go and see it. You are now allowed access to it as a woman. For years you had to be male and you had to have three letters of your moral upstanding nature uh, in case you got tainted by the content. Um, but I was very interested in these collections which are artifacts, drawings, um, notebooks and tales which date from societies where public and private doesn't exist in the sense that we have it now because you're living in too small a group size. Um, but also intimacy um, just means something very different and sexuality, spirituality, these are all things that are very much intertwined and the idea of the self is much more holistic. Um, so the work has evolved through looking at these historic collections and then thinking about what are the spaces in which we can come together to discuss intimate topics now and so this work has evolved again as a sort of research process inviting people together both through invitations to specialists but also opening up spaces where people can come along because they're interested and um, to share ideas and um, the work happens through seminars workshops um, different discussions, but also through a performance work which is based on the history of looking into the history of confession. So, um, confession predates the Christian uh, church by some time, and actually, priests within Catholicism had to make quite a lot of effort to get people to confess to them. And so, I've been interested in looking at uh, these early practices of confession, which was around sharing intimacies between friends and being able to talk about difficult topics. Um, and so the performance work is another work that operates as a game, um, but is based on these older um, methodologies, but also on the, and it, well, including the ancient Greek idea of parhesia, which is a form of truth-telling where one puts oneself at risk in order to share information or challenge a master narrative. Um, but I'm where we're kind of pushing on time and I want to have some conversation, so I will just end briefly by... Um, showing a quick film from the last version of this project, which is just a couple of minutes long, but we'll play. <laughs> a story is not something that is told and it's and it's rigid, and and this is what's what's so good about the storytelling event that uh, takes shapes with everyone uh, contributing it is something that is alive. It is a story that lives within the group that creates it. So the Etophilus Society, the idea of this as a title for the project is to study the discipline of etophilogy, which is the uh, fictitious construct that we've come up with to think about the study of intimacy and, and the space of intimacy and how that's evolved over history. So the idea of the project is really to be a research program that looks at the history of intimacy, how intimacy has been discussed historically, what it's meant, and then how that's evolved over time to how ideas and intimacy are circulated today. Mm -hmm.
once we unpack not just intimacy as a sort of subject matter, but all of the things that sit around its periphery. So there was those elements of truth-telling um, and the way in which we construct intimacies for ourselves using personal mythologies. It was all really layered and rich. Hmm. So we'd be talking about one element of intimacy and then it would move quite gracefully into the next, but then the next one was completely completely separate from it. I thought it was a, like using the different disciplines as well was interesting in terms of different perspectives on intimacy, picking some different writers, some different sort of professions to analyse the same subject matter and it just provide, provides a richer context behind what we're looking at if we can think about it from a psychological perspective and from an ancient Greek historical perspective just yeah, fleshes it out so much more. Through the symposium being more a sort of active research or public research process where people can come in and contribute to that research but think through ideas together and then with the performance to test out some of those ideas uh, collectively and see how we might create or use the knowledge that we've been looking at to create uh, new forms of space or platforms through which intimate topics may be discussed and looking in particular how intimacy is discussed within a public space. I work as, uh, with young people <clears throat> as an advisor and I think what happens is um, you know, we, we have a lot of difficult uh, conversations about sex education, what's normal or what perceptions of normality is and about healthy and unhealthy relationships whether that be you know, family relationships or sexual uh, relationships and um, I think a lot of those discussions came up today um, it was sort of useful to unpick and pick that um, and ideas about you know what's taboo and what's not taboo and how that's kind of changed through history or how sometimes that's you know subjective depending on what culture you come from. The idea for today was really to try and bring together an assemblage of these different approaches and so we had a reading group in the morning where we were looking not at uh, literary critique but rather to look at texts and select ideas from them that we might be able to discuss as a group that might be useful as a starting point for a discussion and then to invite guest speakers to propose ideas that relate to the research proposal um, but that can then be learnt from but also expanded within the context of group discussion. It's a history that, that constitutes uh, a self, it constitutes an identity and all these kind of little mini stories sort of echo each other and then they create a, a narrative that, that draws out a whole, a whole life's worth if you like. Because in life we're all telling a story and we're all kind of making a story as a group and as greater groups but here it's explicit and so that people you know, can't escape it, they know that they're making this story and they know that they're contributing even if they're silent because it is such a small group. Sometimes in the grand scheme of things people can forget that they're actually each and every one of them responsible for the entirety of history in their own fashion. Um, so the performance work with this is um, basically takes place around this uh, story which is a, is a personal confession and the idea is to use all the stories you've ever been told 
to take characters and situations from that to tell a story um, that is your own confession, but you're not talking in the first person, you're telling it as a tale um, by using reference to these sort of older myths. And then, um, so I will always start this off, and in telling that tale, it's the job of everybody there to question that and to go, well, hang on a minute, what's happened to this person? Wouldn't they be feeling this? Wouldn't they be feeling that? But to think of questions which are also the things that allows that person to raise the intimate topic that they want to get advice on from themselves. So it, it's a, the idea is to create a, a space where you can raise very personal topics and gain from the knowledge and experience of everybody within that space. And what happens within the work is that I tell a confession which is deeply personal, uh, but by the end of the process, everybody within the space feels that it's their story because there's been such kind of debate and sharing around each particular point or moment. Um, so always in my work, I'm, I'm just interested in thinking about what new knowledge might come about through us coming together uh, and through this idea of rehearsal. Um, and that this knowledge is real not because it uh, responds or comes from reality in any way, but that it provokes it. Um, and so for me, I think practice, I believe in practice being something that's proactive rather than reactive and something that's generative. Um, and I always kind of uh, say the thing about not, I'm, I'm sort of, I don't like artwork that uh, points and I really love your pointing piece because this completely embodies that uh, whole point. Um, so, yeah, re uh, rehearsal for me is this space for making propositions and imagine, imagining other futures. Um, and that is sort of how I approach work and also what I believe to be the role of art. So I shall finish there. Thank you. Oops, do you want to come up to That's the front it. too? Do I sit in the middle? That's fine. Um, Thank you so much. That was just really, really interesting. Very different approaches. Um, there was kind of lots of similarities as well. Kind of, you both kind of talked a bit about that constructing this safe space and also this enchanted, um, enchanted space. Um, I'm not sure. We haven't got much time, so I might just not ask a question and just open it up to the audience. Has anybody got any questions? I have some, but if not, I think might be nicer to leave it with you. Oh, cheers. Hello. Uh, Emma, when you were um, interacting with people uh, with, on their energetic levels uh, in the tape, were they aware that they were... What, what, what did you say to them regarding the interaction? How so, did you let them know they were involved in, the, in this? So everybody in the space knew that they were involved and actually spent quite a lot of time with me. Well, most people spent a lot, quite a lot of time with me before this. So the project started through a series of experiments, actually, that took place at Arts Admin, where um, I invited people in to, in a very open way, to think about what we might mean when we talk about energy and these relationships. And so I had a um, Tai Chi master, a tantric sex teacher, physicists, people working with energy in very different ways and very conflicting ways, and physicists don't like it when you talk about tantric sex in the context of particle physics. Um, so there was the kind of, I'm always interested in these sort of areas that rub, but are actually, that actually kind of produce these very interesting uh, relations. But through that, I think I, we really pushed the boundary of what was physically comfortable for people to come into a space and think about, and I, I mean, even for myself. Um, and so I felt then when I was thinking about the, the work and the performance that we're going to get more from it if people feel very comfortable in this space. And so the, 
um, the actions that we take in the gallery space were the result of meeting over the period of several weeks. Uh, so there was a call out for people to, who wanted to take part in the work or contribute to it. Some of those had been involved in the research over a longer period of time. Other people, it was then just sort of thrown open to anybody who wanted to come. But we met over a period of several weeks and then and tested out these different practices that we might use, the main one of which being this vocal practice, which is to use the voice where you're um, vocalising in response to something to try and communicate the reverberation of the body in space. So you're, as much as is possible, trying not to consciously think about what sound you're making. You're just allowing some um, a noise to issue forth. Um, but when we initiated this within the public space of the gallery, I also... Um, made an announcement and said, this is what we're going to do. This is the different practices we're going to use. We demonstrated them. My work's very informal uh, in a gallery space. And so this is why this word performance is really uh, not accurate. Um, and so we explained very clearly, this is what we're going to do. This is what's going to happen. These are the things we're going to, these are the practices we're going to use. We're going to do it in this space now. And if anybody else who's here wants to join in at any point, then please just join in. And it, because there was a core group of people who were very comfortably having a go and doing it and testing this out together, it made it very easy for other people to step into that. And so a lot more people joined who just turned up um, on that um, evening for the event. And it, it, to me, it worked actually in the Tate in a way that it didn't work um, when we, were, we did this at um, Whitechapel, not Whitechapel, um, Wising Art Centre. And there you have a, a much smaller space. And I think what the Tate facilitated was, facilitated was because it had such a huge space, it meant that people who hadn't worked with me previously could start doing it without being noticed. And I think that was why so many people felt more able to join in, because they could kind of start having a good shout at something, and no one would actually know that they'd started doing it until they were already doing it. And then once you start doing it, it's actually really enjoyable. Can I ask you both what you feel your role is, kind of, within these projects, and how you negotiate kind of the, um, the various needs of the different partners and participants, in the larger sense of the word participant, within these kind of projects, events, um, rehearsals, whatever we call them? Well, I would say um, my role is as an artist, and, and I think um, that's to me something that's quite important. I think a lot of participatory work can be about facilitating other people to do something and if I'm going to invite people to do something then I think it's only right that I offer up all the skill set that I have into that collaboration. Um, so in part this is my role um, but also and this is maybe something that then starts to touch on the debate around authorship uh, within these type, kinds of practice um, but I think also I'm ultimately responsible within this situation so if somebody's not happy with something or there's any kind of issue, then they, you know, I'm the person that they come to and we, we deal with it. Um, and as part of that, I would view it as part of my practice and um, way of working to make sure that I'm kind of working in a way that I feel is ethically sound and comfortable. Mm. Um. I, suppose, I suppose there's a couple of ways. I mean, in Looper, it was kind of a willful, or Pooper, it's kind of willful naivety. I just kind of wander through a situation and almost feel what sticks or what I stick to. Um, so I think, I, think, I think for me there's a, there's, uh, there's a sort of deliberate way of, 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 of suspending that experience in a way and just kind of passing through it, seeing what, seeing what sticks, a bit like flypaper. And then also th thinking about um, the stuff with William, I do think, I agree with you, I think it's really important that one declares one's intention as an artist and says that, you know, we are going into this space with a specific role and a role which may change and a role which is, which is, which, which permeates and is, is in constant flux. But, um, 
I do agree with you, there's some, uh, there's some parts of what we might call social engaged practice where the artist almost becomes the invisible, the invisible hand that sort of magic, you know, everybody else looks like they're doing it, but the, but, but the, but the position of the artist is somehow undeclared. And I think, that's pro I think that is problematic. Hi, um, this is for Sarah. So, uh, I just wanted to ask, you said that you, um, you mentioned creating spaces for, to, for relationships and you talked about um, relationships happening with, with strangers and obviously like, the first thing that came to mind was uh, Tinder. <laughs> and uh, so it made me think about the stories that my friends have been, my friends have been telling me. Um, about their short-lived relationships, and I just wondered if you'd kind of started to think about some research on on the on these new kind of ways of meeting people and 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 then just leaving and and never seeing them again, but they have a really intimate moment with each other. And I just thought maybe that's some research you've done. Don't know. Yeah, I've actually been thinking about um, how those might translate back into kind of older forms of communication. So I've been doing quite a lot of work recently thinking about this, but with the love letter. Uh, so one of the ways actually that, that the Love Me, Love Me Not piece is documented is that after the work takes place, uh, each person who's taken part is contacted and invited to write, uh, write me a letter just to share what their reflections were of that experience. And they're really um, intimate documents um, and really fascinating that they've sort of thrown up the possibilities for other forms of relationships. So one girl that I did sibling with um, was like, wrote to me and said, I know that you said that we would meet for dinner next week and I understand that that was part of the work, but I would really like to meet for dinner next week. And I feel like I love you and we've had, we've sort of shared this moment of love in a very genuine way. And I think I do, like you really did with each person that took part in that work. Um, and so we've been having a conversation about how we might meet again, and if we meet again, will we always pretend that we're siblings? Um, and that will be just the nature of our relationship. Um, one of the things I actually would like to do with that work um, and to test it further is to give uh, the person who takes part in it greater agency in that within the work, that how it's worked so far and how it, how it happened at the ICA was that I initiated the ending of that meeting. So I would be the one who broke it off by saying I had to go somewhere else or do something else. Um, and I would like that the other person has as much agency as I do to decide now I want to leave this situation and we do establish that before doing it that whenever one of us wants to leave we just make our excuses and part company but I'd also like to push the boundary of it outside of that safety of the gallery and what relationship is possible within there so to just to not have any given end time so that we might decide that after being in the gallery we want to go for dinner we might decide we want to go home we might live together for a month um, and that actually there is that potentiality that it completely crosses into that kind of space um, but it was also making me think, I, I made a proposal recently for a piece of work that I was, uh, didn't end up making because the um, curators felt that there was a different way that the work might operate. And I was kind of a bit disappointed, really. But the, I'd proposed to work with single people on dating websites um, to make a piece of work, which is a love, love letter exchange. And in the end, we ended up doing it just in a fairly open, public way, uh, which I think was actually a real shame and this is something that I was, I was just quite interested in this idea especially when you think about audience engagement and kind of who gets targeted particularly through a lot of participatory practice that working with single people on dating sites might be quite a nice um, a nice thing to do so yeah, it's definitely something that I'm kind of thinking around. 
<laughs> when you um, invo- and, and I agree with you, I think that you know we've articulated the self as being kind of multiple and changing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When you um, when you go through, because you said that you know after that day you felt quite psychotic or, um, at the end. How how do you negotiate that when you're in these kinds of you, you, you know there's because there's there's the understanding of the multiple selves, but then there's also the feeling of the multiple selves. And it's like, how do you deal with those kinds of feelings when, 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 um, when those boundaries are so porous in, in, yeah, that, in, I mean, in terms of those days? In this sense, I think the experience was very different for me to somebody else, because they came in and they experienced one intense relationship, yeah. whereas I was like, okay, multiple. now I'm a child, now I'm a brother, now I'm a yeah. lover, now, and I was kind of having to come in and out of these different spaces. Um, but it's really, I mean, I think this is just maybe completely personal, but it's, com- it's really addictive. Right. Um, so as well as feeling totally mental when I came out, I also came out being like, who else can I love? Um, and, and wanting to like get on the tube and be like, right. Um, so yeah, I, it's probably not a healthy piece of work for me to be honest. <laughs> sense of the porous boundary and the porous self and senses of self actually in a way the things that you're talking about embody a fantasy don't they I mean there has to be a I would say a a suspension of reality in order to make new work of the imagination anyway but there is something about the positioning of yourself within the gallery which you have said today that you really enjoy and actually in a way that um, Jordan seeks out um, the it feels to me as if you're seeking to create the other space within the gallery so that's a, uh, and I'm sure your book is looking at some of those things in terms of making a place and the site of self and multiple selves within that but for Jordan it feels as if there is the seeking out of this other space within the common perhaps contested both personal and public spaces. But there's a fantasy when you're talking about continuing on, living with someone for a month, blah, 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 which, which then the porous boundaries, which are almost kept in a contained space within the gallery, would lose all form, they'd lose all shape. And I wonder whether or not um, where the intentionality of the work would be within that and, where, and how safe you would be, other people would be, which I suppose brings out that whole question within work that you co-author perhaps with non-artists or on a whole spectrum, where um, your role as agent, which you strongly identify with, um, begins and ends, you know, what, what happens there? Because obviously if someone is interested in doing that with you and contacting you saying, I want us to, to be in love, I want that form of relationship with you to continue, that is actually quite a complex, you know, that person has crossed mm. in, the, in the fantasy into some other, mm. uh, well, multiple reality that they're mm. inhabiting themselves and wanting you to be within it. Mm. I suppose what I'm saying is there are, many complexities um, of that relationship with collaborator that as artists we have quite a lot of control over whether we intend it, whether we um, consciously 
um, recognise it or not, just as Jordan does when making the piece of work with William. Um, and there are lots of things that are played out there for William that you would never be aware of. Mm. But somehow in the, in the boundaries, it keeps William safe mm. and not exposed to psychotic episodes. Mm. And I just think that some of those things are very complex mm. and they're, they, they're not set. And I'm not suggesting censorship or mm. forms of saying you can't do this and you can't do that, mm. but there are I wonder, you know, there are those things going on which are, which are complex and perhaps we're beginning to recognise those within the dumping of the word socially engaged perhaps and replacement with contemporary practice and the mm. movement of the artist onto centre stage but with others, with that centre stage being a sort of fluid platform. I don't know, rattling on now. <laughs> <laughs> The, um, there's lots of there's lots in there in what you just said and many things that could be opened out. Um, but it was just making me think of um, I was reading uh, Peggy Fallon recently around this with about the encounter with the other, and that there is so much research done around the violence and disappointment of the encounter with the other, and actually so little done about the romance that is embedded in this. And this is the thing really that I'm kind of interested in getting at, and actually potentially in order to get at that, then this necessitates entering into or inhabiting the space of imagination for some time because this is this is the safe space where we can encounter the other without that violence um. yeah I, I agree with that i think it is i think i think what what happened with williams very romantic is <laughs> a very romantic thing um, on lots of levels and um it was interesting for me to be in his space um not that galleries are neutral but at least it's nowhere where both of you live so it's there comes a lot of responsibility with that, I think, in terms of how that's negotiated. And I keep on using that term, the unburdened listener. I think you have to be the unburdened listener to a certain extent, um, whilst recognising that you are guiding and, to a certain extent, it would be naive to say that I'm not... You're setting the project, you know. You're the one that decides to ask somebody if that's OK that they'll do that. So there's all those kind of problematics involved, I think. And I... I personally probably would be a bit you go further I think than I do in that I think I'd be a bit scared to quantify, take it to the degrees that you do but because um, living with a kind of an alter ego and seeing that slippage that's why I asked that kind of question I thought it was quite it was quite even knowing and having read and understood about the idea of this porous idea of the self and how fragile and kind of fictional that is, I think that, that it, it's, it's very difficult to constantly operate knowingly in all those kinds of registers without it having come some kind of psychological implication. And that's what I've, that certainly did for me anyway. There's two things, which is the kind of care of another and the ethical responsibility in inviting yeah. somebody into a certain situation. And this is always something I would take very seriously yeah. and think around. Um, but I think also there is, to me, a, a practice where we, I think we live in a society of fear where relationship is really dominated by this. And actually, um, if you trust somebody, the likelihood is, in all probability, that they, this is a safe situation. Like, there's a kind of, because trust, it, it, your expectations of somebody are so influential of what you get from somebody. And so if you expect and anticipate to trust somebody, then in all likelihood they will be trustworthy. And I think this is something that, is obviously not the case in a lot of situations, but I think it's a lot of situations are missed because we preempt that it might not be the case. 
Um, and so I'm kind of, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, they're quite sure there are many situations where I've put myself at risk, but I'm quite sure I, there, I don't think I've put anybody else at risk. Yeah, I suppose this leads on from that really in that, Jordan, you talked about um, this idea of accidental participation in, mm. in your work. I think you were specifically talking about Looper there. Mm. And in terms of that, the ethics of that accidental participation, I mean, I wondered in what way you handled that and whether there was, I mean, you talk about the, the overwhelmingly positive response to the work, but was there any space for residents to um, voice dissent from what you were doing or disappointment or irritation with the practice? Um, in the same way that there were, I guess there wasn't an official space for somebody to go, yeah, that was really great. I guess I, there wasn't an official official space for them for them not to. I mean, I guess there's, there's always that point where if somebody's maybe hates it, they just won't say anything. <laughs> so, um, so there very well could have been people there. I mean, I tried to anticipate as much as I could uh, certain things which would be issues like nudity, bloodletting, the time that it happened. Um, I think there was a lot of acceptance because I lived there and actually I'm, I think I will talk about this. There was, um, there was uh, a performance space which opened recently um, uh, by performance space actually, uh, which was on an estate uh, at Poplar, and um, uh, no, but I can find out for you. And uh, basically, what happened was they thought that they'd secured through uh, discussions, meetings, working with um, social workers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, a um, space where they could do their work. And performance space are quite interesting because they, they also carry with them this idea that the work has to be in some, some, somehow carry some, often carry some sort of risk or what they perceive as risk. Um, so they weren't prepared to completely compromise on the kind of work that was shown there. Um, they thought that they'd secured that understanding as it turned out that they hadn't. And when they, their open event, and I need to give you a bit more context. The um, space which they got was literally underneath the houses of the estate, so it was it was it had been used as it, it was disused and was used as garage space, um, which they then cleared out. Um, they thought that they'd secured that understanding and that understanding was fine. Little did they know that there'd actually been a secret campaign on a website and a uh, what they regarded as quite a homophobic. Uh, bullying um, of them as practitioners that had gone on and um, also when that actually happened um, people turned up uh, and there was a big uh, all the estate actually joined together in a really cohesive way um, all different kinds of people to, to say that they quite clearly didn't want that on their estate and what they articulated was um, the things which, in terms of a social, socially, or the history of socially engaged practice, was really, well, their concerns were really clear, that it would be turned into a rave party space, that the space was, that what the work that was going on was somehow contaminatory in terms of nudity, et cetera, or what, what, what might happen. Um, also things like um, gentrification. They were like going, well, they got thrown out of Hackney Wick um, so they've moved here and now all our, all our price, house prices will, will, will go up, et cetera, et cetera. But the, 
the, and the unfortunate thing I think that happened with them was that, was that actually those debates were really important and really fantastic in a way. And then what the consequence of that was, instead of actually, which is what I'd have done, which was just push that out even more and say, okay, this has happened, let's talk about this. Um, performance space, I guess, kind of um, uh, wanted to kind of put a lid on it. I know it had been an awful experience for them, but they sort of wanted to put a lid on it. And I think what was a potentially a space for dialogue and an opportunity to really sort of say, actually, you, you've made yourself on the front line of what's going on here in a really fascinating and interesting way. And really, all the things that we talk about are literally happening in this space. Um, what they did was they, they kind of retreated from that. And I think it was a bit of a missed opportunity on their, on their, on their part. But I can get you and put you in touch with, with, with performance space, they could maybe talk about that. So I didn't directly experience dissent, but then again, possibly, possibly because I lived there, I guess. Oh, I, live, I, live, I live where I work. Um, and maybe they see that as a kind of clear, uh, maybe a more invested kind of uh, way of going about things. And I think they very much felt that some, somebody exterior and alien had moved on to the estate to turn it into some sort of uh, hideous den of performance art. <laughs> on that note of hideous den of performance art. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to um, finish off the evening just to say thank you to everyone for coming and being part of the evening's discussion. Um, and a special thanks to Emma and Jordan, and of course to White Chapel and ArtQuest. <laughs> um, uh, we've got another session coming up in November, um, the 13th, I think, yeah. uh, with Shane Waltner and um, the other person to be confirmed, um, which is called Crafting Practices. Um, and it's going to focus on work which draws inspiration from craft traditions and processes. Um, to explore how artists are negotiating those kind of boundaries, etc. today. Um, so if you're interested, do come along. And just thank you again. Thank you. <laughs>